This episode of New Politics was released on the 12th of February, 2022, and produced on the land of the Wongal people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, we look at the first week of Federal Parliament for 2022. We speak to Jim Chalmers about the economy and the big issues in politics. And how difficult will it be for either side of politics to win the next federal election? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis. I'd like to see what Laura Tingle has said about me in her text messages too. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription. It's just $5 per month for the Ruby Standard Supporter level or $10 per month for the Gold Standard Supporter level. We also do have a new t-shirt design available. It's the It's Time for Change t-shirt. But whether it's a subscription or if you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. Federal Parliament has returned and because there's an election coming up, it's that time of the year when the government starts moving some issues off its plate and removing some of its long-standing problems. They have announced the lifting of an indexation freeze for ABC and SBS funding. That's $84 million for the ABC. Whether that actually happens or not, we'll believe that when we see it. They've thrown money at aged care workers. Again, there's many riders and clauses for these conditions, so we're not actually sure how much will filter through to aged care workers. And the government has put in a lot of effort to make sure the Religious Discrimination Bill gets through Parliament. Now, this is legislation that hardly anybody wants, and it's more about trying to wedge Labor on cultural issues and create division within the community. But this period of Parliament is also notable for what's not being done. The Attorney-General, Michaelia Cash, she's announced that there won't be enough time to create a National Anti-Corruption Commission. And Scott Morrison did announce that he was going to introduce this commission all the way back in December 2018. Three and a half years later, we're still waiting. There's virtually no action at all to mitigate climate change. There's no action against the aged care minister, Richard Colbeck, who decided to go to the cricket instead of fronting up to the Senate Estimates Committee to look at all the issues within the aged care portfolio. And there are genuine refugees still locked up in a Melbourne hotel after nine long years. They're still paying lip service to women's safety issues. And there's so many areas that still need to be resolved. This process of reducing difficult issues before an election is known as clearing the barnacles. But are we likely to see any other movement in key issues before the next federal election? They're very good at announcing. They're not very good at following through. I note to... as on the day of recording, that uh, Scott Morrison is pushing the religious discrimination bill because he said that they'd promised it. They'd promised a whole lot of other stuff too that they have no intention of pushing through. It goes back to the Howard, I guess, core and non-core promises, which caused John Howard, he lost some um, political credibility on that. Of course, 
Morrison hasn't even attempted to try and argue that he is interested in keeping promises that aren't very narrow, very much about appeasing the vested interests who have him there, and very much designed to try and sow division within the community in the hope that he can get the dog whistle to appeal to people's innate sense of racism and privilege. Apparently, the Pentecostal churches have promised him tens of thousands of votes. And to be fair, the election may go down to tens and thousands of votes. I know that the opinion polls are saying Labor landslide, but a lot of the seats, particularly those that uh, Morrison holds in the for the majority, are only there by 50 or so votes. And if they hold, we end up in the same position and maybe a better position for the government next election. A lot of seats were only just lost as well. And if you get the right balance of people, they're won. Even in a period of time where it does seem that a lot of people are against the government, and we've, we've spoken about this before, that the disengaged are becoming engaged and starting to notice. But a government picks what legislation it wants to go through. The Gillard government, I think the highest passed legislation in the time it was in, got a lot done. There's no question that they got a lot done. Rudd was also fairly effective, I guess is the word, in getting a, a lot done. And Julia Gillard had a minority government. She could have lost the independence at any stage. Morrison is much less interested, as was Abbott, in passing legislation. Passing legislation means they're doing something. Passing legislation means that they will be held accountable because the legislation may be challenged and may lose in the court. It may be bad legislation that costs them damages and, and compensation later. It's not a straightforward thing. And they're not great legislators too. The, the bits of legislation that they have got through haven't been terribly good. Usually the Attorney General works very closely with the department to try and close legal loopholes to try and make sure that it doesn't contradict, firstly, the Constitution, secondly, other bits of legislation that may cause confusion. They don't seem to have any interest in this. The disgustingly low numbers of days they sit for Parliament is also a way of not passing legislation. They would rather just write policy and attach it to legislation because, one, policy is easier to change. You don't have to negotiate with the House. Two, you can sneak a lot more through that the Australian people don't need to see from their point of view. And three, if it doesn't work, you can just change the policy quickly. They do not deserve to win government. I don't think they will win government, but we've been caught out before. Well, they might not be spending too much time in Parliament at the moment, but the Coalition's Religious Discrimination Bill, it's taking up all of that time and energy at the moment in Parliament. And the key points are that it's not actually a bill that stops discrimination, but it encourages religious institutions to discriminate against people that it doesn't like, particularly the LGBTQI community and people who might be thinking about gender transitioning. It's actually quite an abhorrent proposal. It takes Australia a step back to the dark ages. Here's the former Olympian Ian Thorpe letting the government know what he thinks about the proposal. Taxpayers contribute to make sure that we actually have, you know, a healthy society. And if we actually have independent schools that have different beliefs, I'm 
I'm supportive of all of that. But I don't think it's appropriate that we're actually funding these schools in the way that we are if that actually goes against what has been recognised in this country. We had a very successful campaign with marriage equality, um, which if it was an election campaign, which we're coming up to one very soon, we would have had a 100-seat majority in the lower house. And it shows that most communities in Australia actually support this. When we look at religious groups, um, and the largest one that we can talk about in Australia is Christians, um, 65% of that group actually support making sure that there is protections uh, for people that happen to be in the LGBTIQ community. And then when you consider all of the minority religions in this country, is they're fearful of what the repercussions can be from this bill. So it isn't just faith against people that might be gay. There's a complexity to this that also includes people that may have a disability to someone who may be pregnant. It goes far beyond this. And when you get into the detail of this bill, and this is the third iteration of this bill, it isn't right and it isn't a step forward. And in any way that you discriminate against one group of people in favour of another, it's not a step forward. If I were the Prime Minister, I would not want to go to an election on this. And I actually encourage everyone, the sensible people that are in the, the middle in this group, not only from one side, from the government side, but also from Labor's side, and encourage them to actually make sure that this bill does not go through. This is a bill that has no friends in Canberra and probably has no friends around the country. The irony here is that Labor proposed a referendum back in 1988 to protect religious freedom and expression in the Australian Constitution, and the Liberal Party campaigned strongly against it, so it was defeated at the time. It was all about politics then, it's all about politics now. And as Gladys Berejiklian said of Scott Morrison, he's only concerned about politics and not of people. The Coalition first discussed this religious discrimination bill in the lead-up to the 2019 federal election, and they produced their first exposure draft of the bill in August 2019. A competent government and one committed to such legislation would have enacted this a long, long time ago, but almost three years later, it's still being discussed. They probably were hoping to use it as an election trigger to create an option for a double dissolution election, or they were just hoping to use it as a political wedge against the Labor Party, which is what they're doing. And and again, they just haven't got the competence to do this effectively. And it's just hanging around as a divisive and damaging issue within the community. Someone today suggested it was a way of getting the discussion off Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins and the National Press Club. And that's quite possible. We know that Morrison has a pathological need to control the narrative. And when it goes on to things that he doesn't like or doesn't want to talk about, it goes horribly wrong. So talking about religion where he can try and guilt people into thinking that perhaps if this doesn't go through, it's oppressing Christian schools, most of which are on more than $100 million a year. And organisations that earn over $100 million a year aren't generally considered repressed or oppressed. It's is clearly a way of tapping into that ugly part of the Australian psyche that doesn't like the other. 
and that ugly part of the psyche that will kick into the weaker, thinking that it's doing a good thing. And they're also just focusing on all the wrong things. The religious discrimination bill, it's just so that some right-wing churches obsessed with sex can expel gay students and staff just to make themselves feel better about themselves and feel morally superior, whereas the issues of far greater importance, such as the Anti-Corruption Commission and the aged care sector, all of these issues are being left behind. There's a report into all of the problems in the aged care workforce, and that report was completed in September last year, that the government refuses to release. And you can be guaranteed that if it did contain good news, they would have released it immediately. Michaela Cash, she announces that there's not enough time to implement the Anti-Corruption Commission, three and a half years after Scott Morrison first announced it. And as I said before, we're still waiting. Even though they did create half-baked legislation that wouldn't have deterred any corruption at all, and some experts even suggested that it would encourage corruption, they haven't even got the competence to implement incompetent projects. And then there was actually confusion about the statement put out by Michaelia Cash, with Morrison claiming that there's still a possibility that the Integrity Commission could be introduced before the next election. So it seems that the coalition cannot get its story straight and people might not believe them anyway. It is a government that's lost legitimacy. It is a government that has no real direction for the greater good or for the greater benefit of the Australian people. It's a government that is working with some very narrow interests. Scott Morrison's own personal faith is obviously driving this religious discrimination bill. Now, when you really look at it, I think it's less than 1.5% of people in Australia identify as trans. And it's about 4% in total who identify as LGBTQIA+. So when you look at the people who can afford to go to private schools and then who want to go to religious schools, we're not dealing with very many people at all who will be taken out of this. But, of course, you can't look at a group of kids and say, oh, no, all of these will be fine. Changes happen. People realise things about themselves. So even if it is only a couple of hundred kids, and I'm because I'm guessing this will be the next argument, they still need protection. They still need to be looked after. They still need acceptance. They still need support. They still need the whole thing. And if they're in the school and come out at 15, to be expelled is just awful. And... Stephen Jones, the Labor member, spoke about, I think it was his nephew, who ended up committing suicide, which is terribly sad and tragic. Last week, my family said well to, farewell to my nephew, Ollie. He was just 15 when he took his own life. No mother or father should have to endure this sight. No brother should have to clean up afterwards. He was a beautiful, creative, courageous young man. He was loved and accepted by his parents, by his family, by his friends and community. His mum and dad are in anguish. We all are. He was gay, he was uncertain about his gender, and he struggled with his mental health. But now he's gone, and we're no longer going to be able to love and support him on his journey through life. Clearly, the love and acceptance of his family and friends would are not enough. My own son is also a beautiful, creative, intelligent 14-year-old. He designs and makes his own clothes. He's a gifted makeup artist. 
He moves seamlessly between the wardrobes of men and women. He wears heels that give me vertigo and has more handbags than his sister. He has more courage than any other boy of his age than I've ever, ever met. He swims against the tide. I love and support him unconditionally, but I worry myself sick every time he leaves the house because I know that the love and protection that he enjoys with his mother and his friends and his family is very different to the reception that he may receive in the outside world. Could this be the day when we receive the call that says something has happened, that he has been attacked for just being who he is? Yet this is about my kids, but it's not. It's about all of our kids. It's about the families of those kids. Every child who's had the courage to swim against the tide just to be who they are. You know, earlier today, the Prime Minister said we should exercise our power in this place with love. I'm asking the Prime Minister to reflect on those words as we consider the bill. I'd ask the Prime Minister and every other member in this place to put themselves in the shoes of the parents or the heels of their kids as they step out in public. What message do we want this parliament to send to these kids? Are they as loved and cherished and respected as every other kid? Surely we aren't saying to them, it's okay if you're gay, just so long as we don't see it. Surely we can do better than that. These are avoidable, unnecessary deaths, all because somebody doesn't like that other people are built in a different way. It's no different to racism, it's no different to misogyny, it's no different to any form of bigoted opinion. I would go so far to say is that, well, I don't like public funding to private schools anyway. I think it's a con, I think it's a rort, and I don't think it does anything but kick into poorer schools. But I would say that the government could put in these are the conditions. You accept anyone who wants to go to the school and it's only disruptive or destructive behaviour, the, the normal things that might get you expelled from a school uh, that can get you expelled. Nobody wants a bully, nobody wants a kid breaking things or what have you, okay? That's perfectly reasonable and that's, that's a condition of a public school, really. But in terms of race, sexual orientation, their condition should be you want the money, you have to accept these people. This is a symbolic act of really bullying. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Look at the sky. said Jesus came, gone through St. Louis, gone straight away, now yellow winter, we'll cut you quick, if tears were liquor. Self-sick.
There's also been a surprise with the big announcement that the ABC is to receive a funding boost, but it's just an announcement. It's just to remove the funding freeze to the ABC, which means that it will have an increase of $84 million in funding. This is money that it should have received anyway, but since 2013, the Coalition has defunded the ABC by $526 million, or $793 million if you include the indexation freeze, and, and all they're doing is putting back some of the money that they removed in the first place. So it's a classic announcement trick by the Coalition and by Scott Morrison. They have railed against the ABC for the past 30 years, and especially since 2013. The Liberal Party conference actually voted to sell off the ABC in 2015. So this is primarily an election stunt. And again, it's just a question of whether people will believe this or not. Some people might, of course, but I don't think too many people will believe these sorts of announcements. I don't know that anything he announces ever gets done. It looks like... They've got no intention of increasing ABC funding. They've got no intention of increasing SBS funding. If you look at the 50 points to improve Australia by the IPA, a group of people who wouldn't know how to improve anything, fairly high up the list is selling off the ABC and SBS. And you can align what passes for policy in the government with this IPA document. So... They're not going to, even unfreezing. Look at the money for people who lost their ha- homes in the bushfires. Still not through. Look at the promises for pandemic payments. A lot of those still aren't through. If you are Harvey Norman or Qantas or many, many large companies, you'll get the money. If you're not, you won't. The ABC is on the don't pay them. So announcements are easy to make following through on those announcements is not easy, so they won't do it. And Barnaby Joyce has also added to Scott Morrison's problems when it was revealed that he sent a text message over a year ago in a roundabout way to Brittany Higgins for reasons which have yet to be adequately explained. And that included a message that he said that he didn't get along with Scott Morrison and He said that he was a hypocrite and a liar and that he never trusted him. I assume that he was talking about Scott Morrison, not about Barnaby Joyce. But the funny part about this was that Joyce then announced to the media that he offered his resignation to Scott Morrison and that he was big enough to reject it. But this media act promotes Morrison as magnanimous and and a man of forgiveness and he's big enough to forgive Barnaby Joyce, but he's not big enough to forgive welfare recipients or forgive asylum seekers, even though they've done absolutely nothing wrong. But the issue here is that it's not up to Scott Morrison to accept a resignation from the leader of the National Party, and that's Barnaby Joyce. It's up to the National Party itself. And the foolish mainstream media, they overlook this key fact, everyone except for Lisa Wilkinson from the project. And again, it was yet another worthless announcement and something that wasn't actually true. It was yet another political stunt. The other thing to sort of note too is that there's a type of Christian, and I don't include all Christians in this, but there is a type of Christian who uses forgiveness as a weapon. You must forgive me because then I can move on with my life and it shows your worth as a person to me. When Scott Morrison says he forgives someone, it is because he has managed to wrench an advantage from it and he probably hasn't forgiven we've known for years that morrison and joyce don't get on opposites attract 
I guess the same types of things repel. And both of them are third-rate nobodies who should be nowhere near Parliament, let alone in positions of responsibility. Morrison, no doubt, will exact revenge on Barnaby, and I suspect that the backgrounding has already started, or it might start closer to the election. Barnaby, of course, will background on Morrison. I don't think we'll see the last of leaked tweets and leaked WhatsApp messages and leaked emails where one of the participants will be named and the other one won't. It's not how you run a country, of course. And the other thing, too, is that there's not a lot of this happening in Labor, not a lot of this happening in Greens, both of which have had very bitter interfactional fights in the past. And interfactional fights, of course, isn't a criticism as such. All parties have them. But it seems that the left, broadly speaking, of politics is organised and fairly united and trust each other, even if they don't like each other very much, they trust each other enough to not background against themselves at the moment. And we discussed some of these performance art issues last week, but Morrison decided that the best way to show that he understands women was to go to a cocoa hair salon in Melbourne and wash a young woman's hair. And it was part of a political stunt to support the Liberal candidate for Dunkley, Sean Coombs, but it was a very, very weird event as far as I'm concerned. Now, I'm not a woman, obviously, and I haven't got too much hair to wash, but to me, it just looked incredibly creepy. And for political neutrality, I just thought, well, how would I feel or what would I think if it was another male politician, a different politician? Would I feel the same? So I imagine what my reaction would be if it was Adam Bant doing the same thing or Anthony Albanese or Warren Ench, Richard Miles, Mark Butler, Mark McGowan or Daniel Andrews and replace Scott Morrison with any of those other people and it's still creepy and inappropriate. It just didn't seem the right place for a man in a suit to appear and and even if it was, it was the wrong type of man as well. So much of this seems like season two of a political soap opera on television. We had season one during the 2019 federal election and now we've got season two. It's the same type of characters but different scenes. The star of the show is still Scott Morrison, but the ratings and the quality of season two are nowhere near as good. It was appalling. And someone pointed out, could you see Joe Biden doing that or Emmanuel Macron going in and I'm up for re-election, so I'm going to wash somebody's hair to show that I understand the plight of the working people. There's just no dignity in it. There's just no gravitas The only other world leader I could imagine probably doing that is Boris Johnson. And given how Boris is traveling this week, we can see how well this type of stunt would have gone anyway. Jacinda Ardern wouldn't do it. I imagine she wouldn't want to cheapen the work that's done by hairdressers. And she knows that that's not her job. He tried it with the sheep shearing in the last election. And back then it wasn't appropriate and he probably hurt the sheep. And they probably didn't use that fleece anyway because sheep's shearing is is a skill. Why he keeps trying to do highly skilled work. This is a guy who doesn't understand how forklifts work. I shake my head. And speaking of going after the women's vote, which is obviously what Scott Morrison is attempting to do, well, all political parties are 
going for the women's vote in the next federal election. That's an understandable part of the political process. But Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame, they've spoken at the National Press Club. And here's a few excerpts from their speeches. I didn't want his sympathy as a father. I wanted him to use his power as prime minister. Some of his language last year was shocking and at times admittedly a bit offensive. But his words wouldn't matter if his actions had measured up, then or since. I wanted him to wield the weight of his office and drive change in the party and our parliament and out into the country. And one year later, I don't care if the government has improved the way that they talk about these issues. I'm not interested in words anymore. I want to see action. I received a threatening phone call from a senior member of a government-funded organisation asking for my word that I wouldn't say anything damning about the Prime Minister on the evening of the next Australian of the Year Awards. You're an influential person. He'll have a fear, they said. A fear? What kind of fear, I asked myself. A fear for our nation's most vulnerable? A fear for the future of our planet? And then I heard the words, you know, with an election coming soon. And it crystallised. A fear. A fear for himself and no one else. A fear that he might lose his position, or more to the point, his power. I want to close by saying that for all the fear and anger and sadness that my time in politics has brought me, it didn't take away my belief in Australia, my faith in our democracy. I know our country can do better for women and girls. You see me here standing tall, if a little bit broken, standing on the shoulders of giants, side by side with Brittany, side by side with all of you, together, making change, making history, but above all else, making noise. Thank you. Scott Morrison did make an apology to Brittany Higgins in Parliament during the week. I am sorry. We are sorry. I'm sorry to Ms Higgins for the terrible things that took place here and the place that should have been a place of safety and contribution turned out to be a nightmare. But I'm sorry for far more than that, for all of those who came before Ms Higgins and endured the same, but she had the courage to stand. And so here we are. So we are sorry for all of these things. And in doing so, each of us take an accountability for changing these things. And here's also Anthony Albanese's response. We owe a debt of gratitude to everyone in this building as well as every former staff member who stepped up to share their experiences of workplace bullying and misconduct, of sexual harassment, and most traumatically, of sexual assault. I also acknowledge particularly the women who bravely stood up and called out a culture of mistreatment that brought this issue into the light. And I particularly pay tribute 
to the courage of Brittany Higgins, who's with us today. You have torn through a silence that has acted as the life support system for the most odious of status quos. To describe your experiences is to relive them. I say to everyone who took part, that took a level of courage that you should never have needed to show. But you did, and we thank you for it. The speeches from Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame at the National Press Club, they were powerful speeches, and they're making sure that the important issue of women's safety remains on the agenda and an issue in the lead-up to the next federal election. And having outspoken people speaking about these important issues is the way to make sure that the powerful people that just want the issue to go away end up doing something about it and not just offer apologies and sweep it under the carpet. So Scott Morrison did make an apology to Brittany Higgins in Parliament, but it's just a pity that he didn't apologise for the Liberal Party covering up the incident of rape in April 2019, just a few days before the federal election was announced. And it's a pity that Scott Morrison didn't also apologise for the slow movement on all of these issues. Morrison has been very slow to act on women's safety. He sat on a report by the Sex Discrimination Commissioner for over a year. He was slow to acknowledge that there are serious gender balance issues, sexual harassment and abuse that takes place in Parliament and within the Liberal Party. And he also instructed coalition MPs not to attend that National Press Club address by Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame. So for me, this apology seems to be dealing with a political problem in the lead up to an election campaign rather than dealing with the problems themselves. So it's typical of Scott Morrison. Make the announcement or make the appearance of doing something and then follow it up with doing absolutely nothing. Years ago when I was working in television, the man who owned the company, who was a fairly prominent ex-commercial television executive, said to me, we had a new product coming out in three or four weeks. And I said, are we going to announce it? And he said, never announce what you're going to do. Always announce it when you've done it. Because people remember when things happen and they don't, and they don't go ahead. By people, he didn't mean the general public, I think. He meant your peers. To get a reputation of getting things done, you have to be seen to be getting things done. An apology with no solid attempt at reconciliation. It's not enough to just say, sorry, you have to, we're bringing in new parliamentary uh, work procedures, so this won't happen again. We are going to find the perpetrators and arrest them and take them to court and have the full force of justice thrown at them. We are going to ensure that all male staff know how to behave appropriately to our female staff and I guess vice versa, although the vast majority of cases go from male to female. And we will make sure that there are severe repercussions if these standards are breached. But he's done none of that. He's just sort of said, oh, sorry. Meanwhile, let's kick into trans kids. Let's kick into gay kids. But sorry, women, uh, we'll try not to do it again. And it was just appalling. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Up next... We speak to the Shadow Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, and we'll discuss everything about the economy and the upcoming federal election.
The economy is going to feature strongly in the next federal election, as it always does, and Australia is facing some challenging economic issues going into the future. Jim Chalmers is the federal member for the seat of Rankin in Queensland. He's been in Parliament since 2013, and he's also the shadow treasurer who will need to convince the electorate about Labor's economic credentials. Jim Chalmers, welcome to New Politics. Thanks for having me on your show, Eddie. Now, there's a federal election coming up soon, and you're the shadow treasurer, hoping to become the actual treasurer. What are the key economic issues that you'll be running with this year? I think wages are the most important thing, Eddie, and that's because, you know, wage stagnation's been a feature of the economy, not just the last couple of years of the pandemic, but for much of the last decade that the coalition's been in office. And I think what really turbocharges that as an economic challenge is the fact that we've got cost of living going through the roof now as well. So ordinary working people are going backwards at the same time as the government's crowing about the economy and about the recovery. I think the difference between us and them is we want the economy and the recovery to work for everyone uh, and not just be some kind of abstract recovery on a page that's celebrated for political purposes. It's not a real recovery unless ordinary working people uh, who work hard can get ahead. And just looking at some of the figures, the big issues that usually surround the Labor Party when they're in government are debts and deficits. When Labor lost the election in 2013, national government net debt was $175 billion. In August 2021, after eight years of coalition government, it was $626 billion. And it's more than likely to be a little bit higher than that. Now, Political parties of all persuasions, they'll try and claim that the government has got national debt too high and it's not managing the finances very well. But in the current circumstances of a pandemic, is this high level of debt necessary? Should we be going further into debt or should government start paying down these debts as soon as possible? Yeah, I think what really matters here is what we've got to show for all that debt. You know, when debt was a fraction of what it was, what it is now, the, the government, the Liberals and Nationals said it was a disaster. Now it's some multiples of that and they say it's manageable. Uh, and much of that debt was accumulated even before COVID-19. And so that's the kind of context. Um, but I think what matters here is we've got this generational debt, but we haven't got a generational dividend from it. You know, it's not like the government borrowed uh, and got this remarkable ongoing economic dividend from it. It's, a lot of it is poor quality spending. You think about, you know, the sports rorts or the car park rorts or the dodgy land deals or the, you know, the JobKeeper, which was given to companies that were already profitable. You think about the billions of dollars that the submarines debacle will cost the budget, all those sorts of things. Uh, so there's two things here, quality of the debt, quantity of the debt. Quantity of debt matters, but not having something to show for it, I think, matters more. And just looking a little bit at economic history, because our audience does like to know a little bit more about just the day-to-day -day political process, governments didn't spend enough money in the Depression era during the 1930s, and that caused great hardship for many people in the community. In the post-war era, all the way through to the end of the 1970s, that was influenced by Keynesian economics. Governments were only too happy to spend money and not too many people at the time were complaining about government debt. Since the 1980s, we've had a focus on supply-side economics, taking away too much from that relationship between the economy and people that actually make up that economy. Now, as you know, economic thinking does go up and down in cycles. We've had 40 years of neoliberalism before that, 30, 40 years of Keynesian economic thinking. And we've probably reached the end of one of those economic cycles. Do you think that it's time for new economic thinking that we could use to address some of those economic problems that we've got at the moment? 
Yeah, I think so, Eddie. And, you know, I'm attracted to the thinking uh, by Mazzucato, you know, this idea that uh, government in partnership with business can, you know, invest in ways that we get these long-term uh, economic dividends. I think that's the kind of thinking we should be involved in now. And a lot of our policies are, uh, you know, in some way or another kind of interact with the idea that there's a role for government, not uh, to, um, you know, necessarily to direct all aspects of the economy, but to work with the private sector, to co-invest with the private sector in areas like the care economy or advanced manufacturing and the like. But I think that history is really important and I think it's really instructive. You know, you think about the mistakes made during the Great Depression. Uh, you think about uh, the failure of 40 years of uh, trickle-down neoliberalism around the world, but particularly in kind of Thatcher's Britain and uh, Reagan's America, you know, the downsides of that, particularly from a human perspective, but also from an economic perspective. And so my kind of... Um, uh, the period that kind of impacted me the most was during the global financial crisis. I was working in various senior roles for uh, the Rudd and Gillard governments in the Treasurer's office. And one of the lessons we tried to learn from earlier periods uh, was that, yes, it matters how you intervene in the economy when it's at its lowest ebb, but it also matters how you withdraw that support. And if you do it too quickly, it can cruel the recovery. And I think that's one of the lessons that hasn't been learned by this current government. Uh, in the aftermath of the, the first recession in almost three decades. You need to make sure that as the economy recovers, you actually secure that recovery. And one of the ways you do that is to make sure you're not leaving people and small businesses behind uh, by prematurely, for political reasons, turning off uh, the important support on the economy. So, yes, you need to learn the lessons from history. Uh, we have tried to do that. I'm not, I'm not sure that the current government understands some of those lessons that have been learned over the past 100 years or so. Now, economic policy plays a part in virtually every sector of the community. And there's so many areas at the moment that seem to have been neglected over the past decade. Now, I'm not suggesting that the country is falling apart at the seams, but so many issues seem to have been overlooked. There's women's safety issue, there's the funding of the NDIS, there's climate change, there's the management of the pandemic. And and a lot of these issues seem to be moving very slowly or going backwards. And Labor, based on what it has been announcing over the past two or three years, seems to be keen to address many of these issues. But if you do go on to win the next election, will Labor be limited in what it can hope to achieve, given the state of the economy at the moment? Well, I think we need to recognise that uh, you know, you can't have a good economy without a good society. And a lot of those other issues that you raised are crucial, you know, in, in overarching terms, but also in terms of the economy. You think about issues of security, whether it's personal security, energy security, uh, national security. These are all, you know, absolutely critical, critical to economic security. So, yes, we would take a broader view. And if there's one lesson that we should have learned from the pandemic is that you can't have a healthy economy without healthy people uh, and healthy communities. And so I think that uh, is, you know, arguably the key conclusion. In terms of how ambitious or how broad ranging a, a new Labor government would be under Anthony Albanese, obviously we will be ambitious, but we also need to recognise that a lot of these issues that have uh, festered in our communities and in our economy uh, over the last decade or so of the Liberals and Nationals in charge in Canberra. They can't be undone or fixed. 
you know, arguably, in, certainly in a first budget of a Labor government, arguably in a first term. And so we've got to work out what we care about most and what we want to address first. We can be ambitious without pretending that we can kind of fix 100 or 200 problems, you know, in the first 100 days in office. So we need to be realistic about that as well. Build back better. That's a theme that Labor has been pushing over the past few months. I've seen the posters and I've seen some of the stickers. And I guess that's something that you will be pushing during the election campaign. The coalition was pushing that idea of the snapback for the economy during the early stages of the pandemic. Now, the world has changed dramatically over the past two years and and most of us will probably never see change like this again in our lives. Now, it might not be possible for the economy to snap back to the way that things used to be, but for the Labor Party, what is Build Back Better and what does it actually look like? Yeah, well, Build Back Better means, you know, an economy and a society which is stronger after COVID-19 than it was before. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a major difference between the parties because, you know, we think Australia can do better than go back to all the wage stagnation and job insecurity and flatlining living standards and weak business investment and all the rest of it, which has characterised the economy uh, for that period before the pandemic. You know, a lot of these problems in our economy, the government wants to pretend, you know, they just appeared in January of 2020 uh, and they couldn't do anything about it. But people who, you know, have a proper understanding of the pandemic know that it just turbocharged some of the existing weaknesses uh, that we had in the economy, particularly around the people-facing uh, part of the economy. So for us, uh, build back better means trying to ensure that as the economy recovers, uh, that, reco that recovery works for everyone. You know, it doesn't leave people behind and that we do better than have all of that wage stagnation and economic security, which is characterised, you know, the six or eight years before any of us had even heard of the coronavirus. And just to a question on a matter outside your portfolio, the religious discrimination bill. Now, I had to ask because it's been the talk of the parliament for most of this week. Why did Labor decide to support the bill? Now, I do realise that you put in those amendments to protect the rights of transgender people, but I've heard no one in the community asking for such a bill in the first place, and it seems to be more of an esoteric wish list from the Prime Minister more than anything else. Would it have just been better for Labor to fully oppose the bill? Well, our big priority there, and certainly my big priority, was how do we make sure that we get the genuine protections for people who want to practice their faith. You know, you think about um, Muslim women, for example, who want uh, to be able to wear a hijab uh, without uh, the risk of being discriminated against. I think that's an important principle. And some parts of the bill uh, are very, very supportable from a progressive point of view. So we wanted to make sure that we could have those kinds of protections for people right across the faiths uh, without making life harder or, or making it easier to discriminate against, for example, transgender kids. And so everyone in our team uh, wanted to try and find a way that we could protect the kids uh, and, you know, introduce some issues around uh, racial vilification and some of the other legal and constitutional issues. We decided we wanted to fix those. Uh, and if we could fix those, then we could get the protections, uh, the faith-based protections at the same time as we could protect kids, especially trans kids, uh, but also deal with some of these other sorts of issues. And so, 
It's an on-balance call, and I know that in the community there's a, a range of views, obviously, as there are in the parliament and in the parties themselves. But in that all-night sitting, uh, you know, we had uh, a big win uh, when we were able to convince some elements of the Liberal Party to come over, particularly on those protections for kids and trans kids especially. Uh, so I think in lots of ways that's a vindication uh, of the position that we took. Now, we anticipated at that point that the fight would move to the Senate uh, where we could try and strike a better balance and get a better bill than the government was proposing. Uh, but the government ran for the hills. You know, they were more interested uh, in some kind of political outcome than actually protecting people from discrimination. And so our understanding is that they've now shelved the bill. So there won't be a bill at all. So for those people who didn't want to see the bill proceed, uh, that's effectively the outcome that we have now. We did our best for trans kids and for kids more broadly and to try and combat racial vilification in a way that maintains some of the useful parts of the bill from a progressive point of view. Uh, now it seems like that all-night sitting was effectively for nothing because the government doesn't even have uh, the guts to bowl the bill up in the Senate. So that's where we're at now. Now, Jim, you're a member of the Federal Labor Caucus, so I'd expect that you'd understand the Labor history a little bit. But 50 years ago, in 1972, Labor's election slogan was, it's time. Labor won that election and ended 23 years of coalition government. You've been in opposition for almost nine years, and unfortunately for you, most of your, all of your parliamentary career has been in opposition. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> and you'd realise that it's not much fun being in opposition. Elections are always difficult to win, especially from opposition, but if it's going to be time for Labor in 2022, what else do you need to do to make sure that you can get there? Well, I think it's really two things. You know, I heard the Prime Minister say the other day, you know, election's not a referendum on the government's performance, it's a choice. When I think your listeners would understand and the broader community would understand that it's both. Uh, and people have worked Scott Morrison out, just like his colleagues have, sending those character assessments around about uh, how he's, you know, I think temperamentally incapable of, of taking the responsibilities of leadership. So it's partly a referendum. Uh, on Scott Morrison uh, and his temperament and his failures, essentially, over the last couple of years. But it is also genuinely a choice. Uh, and the reason we talk about a better future is because we feel like uh, the government has basically vacated the field. They think about kind of one headline to another, one uh, news bulletin to another without a big plan for the country. And you know, the country deserves better. The people who've made so many sacrifices for each other to get through the pandemic, the thanks that they get can't be another second decade of stagnant wages and all these other things we've been talking about. And so that's why we want cleaner and cheaper renewable energy. It's why we want a better NBN when we've got an economy where more people are working for home. We want free TAFE where there are skill shortages and more uni places. We want more accessible childcare. We want a future made in Australia, particularly when it comes to advanced manufacturing and the care economy and all the rest of it. This is our forward agenda. Uh, and you think about the, you know, the, the, the wonderful um, campaign that Goff and his colleagues ran in 1972. It was an opportunity for the country to think about how it could be bigger and more successful and more inclusive in the future than it was in the past. And so there are parallels here, just like there are parallels with 83 and 2007. Now, this election is whether or not we can do better as a country and be fairer and more inclusive and more sustainable uh, and 
and all of that, that this is what the, the election is about, partly a referendum, partly a choice. And one of the reasons that gives us confidence but not complacency is because we think there's an appetite in the community, just like there was in those other inflection points in our political history, for something better uh, and something more inclusive. And I think Anthony and our team is uniquely placed at this moment to provide it. Jim Chalmers, thanks for your time today. Much appreciated, Eddie. I'll talk to you again soon. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.